0: I think the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. And I mean that in business, I mean that in your family, I mean that as a coach. And so what I'm saying is, if things aren't going well on your team or in your business unit, your family, before you start raising Cain with all the people you're supposed to be leading, you need to look yourself in the mirror, make sure you're doing it all right. Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast, powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet
1: cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking the job at Nick. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs and utilize over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Caps. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better,
0: this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry.
1: All right, welcome back to the show this week. Um I've got a special guest that I can't wait to share with you. Um I really just come to know the name probably 7 or 14 days ago when a friend sent me a uh, podcast that he was on and I listened to it and I thought, "Wow, man, like I've got to get this guy into my podcast world." So um, today, we have Bill Courtney. He is actually the CEO of Classic American Hardwoods, a lumber company in Memphis, Tennessee. He starred in the 2011 Academy Award-winning documentary, Undefeated. No idea how I missed that the first go around. Um, the way I've come across him was on Mike Rose podcast, The Way I Heard It. Um, the episode was actually named Rolling Up to the Red Carpet in a Purple Crown Vic, which is interesting enough as it is. He has his own podcast, An Army of Normal Folks, which I have listened to for, and they are fantastic. He's written a book, Against the Grain, which I ordered and read um, in preparation for this. So today, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy Bill Courtney. Bill, I appreciate you being with us, and I can't wait to get started.
0: Coach, if you uh, if you gonna get out of the ball game and want to get into being a, um, you could probably with that introduction you could probably be a publicist or something. I appreciate all the kind words.
1: Sounds so good. It's like your mom read it, huh? Like yeah, she did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But well, you don't
0: you don't look nothing like my mama,
1: coach. <laughs> oh, not. All right, man. This is where I want to go first. You know, just knowing your story and your background and You know, the name of the podcast that I run is Never Stop Getting Better. Like, I want to try to be of service to other people in this world, you know, and to give them something that can make them better. Where I want to start with is I know from your story, um, you were raised by a single mom. You know, what did you learn from that? What did you take away from that? And how did that influence you in becoming a mentor? to young kids later on in your life? My dad left home when I was four and I never had anything
0: to do with me. Um, Mom was married and divorced five times, coach. Uh, My fourth daddy took out a thirty-eight caliber pistol and shot at me down a hallway one night. Mm. I had to dive out of window to save myself. And when the police got there, mom was in the attic and he was reloading. Um, All this say, I came up with a lot of dysfunction. Sure. Um, and if it weren't for my coaches, I don't know where I'd ended up. Those were my mentors. Those were the men in my life who kept me straight. My My ninth grade year in high school, I got in a little dust up, got to tussling. And um, back then you were sent to the coach's office when you got in a fight. If you're an athlete rather than going to the principal's office and trust me. Back in my day, that was a hell of a lot worse than going to the principal's office. And yeah. I knew Coach Spain was about to tear into me pretty good. Um, coach Spain was an old, no-nonsense guy a mile in Tennessee, the son of a cotton farmer. Really good football coach and raw bone, tough, matter of fact, but also had a real heart. And when I sat down at his office, when I expected him to tear into me, he looked at me said, Billy and back then I was Billy now I'm Bill I guess we get older and we drop the Y but he said Billy why'd you get in a fight today and I said coach I'm just so angry and I was angry and he said well he said I I know what you got going on at the house and I know there's a lot of dysfunction and first word ever first time I ever heard the word trauma he said and frankly I think you experienced a little bit of trauma and he said and I understand you're angry and he said but you're getting, you've gotten to an age, you're big enough now that you're a young man, you're not a boy anymore. And he said, when you become a young man, you have choices to make. And he said, today, I want you to think about a choice you have to make. You can be just like your environment. You can be a victim of that environment and you can grow up just like that environment. And what you'll do is you'll live to repeat it. You'll end up divorced, you'll have to see your kids on every other weekend. You'll probably lose a job or two and you'll be miserable. And he said, unfortunately, that's the illustration of life that's been put in front of you. And he said, or you can look at another illustration of life. And he said, that life looks like this. You can decide you're going to dig your heels in and you're going to be a rock that other people break themselves on. Mm -hmm. And he said, but son, it's a choice you got to make. And so the question you asked me, you know, how did growing up shape who I am? Really, it's not how growing up shaped who I am, but it's how those who mentored me through a really traumatic dysfunctional process shaped me into who I am. And it was men like Philip Spain who pointed out to me, we always have choices and we always have opportunities and you know, when you come to Hawaii on the road, the, the those those separations of the road often define the next 10 years of your life. And I can't say that that exact moment I had an epiphany and changed my life, but I will say over the course of that year, I never quit thinking about what Coach Spain said to me. And I did make the choice to dig my heels in and try to be a rock that other crazy people are going to break themselves on. And realize that the dysfunction that that can tear people down, you can either choose to be a victim of it or you can choose to rise above it. So I denounced victimhood. I chose to be a rock and uh, tried to operate my life accordingly as a result of the way I grew up and the mentors who entered my life and showed me a different way to live.
1: Man, I think that's an outstanding lesson. You know, it's something that we've talked about with our kids on numerous occasions is we do not get to choose the world that we are born into. We do not get to choose our mom and dad. We do not get to choose our identity up to a certain age because man, it's luck of the draw, you know, but when you get to be 13, 14, 15, 16, you actually get the opportunity to choose to stay in that identity or choose to be something else, you know? And that's something that, you know, I probably didn't really understand that early enough that, you know, like you, you do get a, you do get an opportunity to choose. You do not have to repeat the cycle. And like in your case, you, and you probably have no idea what you've done to change The Courtney family for the rest of your life, you know, like because you could have repeated that cycle. You could have done the exact same thing that, you know, you were in line with, but you changed that cycle. So now your kids see something different. I know this.
0: I've been married to the same woman for 32 years, and I'll be buried next to her one day. And I have four children that are 26, 25, 20, 27, 26, 25, and 24. A lot of kids in a hurried up time. It's hard <laughs> to keep that straight sometimes. But i I know that um, I know that those four children have been the biggest blessings in my life, next to my wife. And I know for a fact, without having the mentors in my life to illustrate a different way of leading life, that I would not have the life I have today. No so I don't know how I changed the Courtney quote Courtney family dynamic, but I
1: sure as heck know how I changed mine. Yes. No doubt about it. You know, and, and, you know, a lot of times they say more stuff is caught rather than taught. Okay. Ah. So what did, you know, those four kids, you know, what did they catch growing up, you know, in, in the household? Another coach
0: I had Ray Condor told me that when I got to be a, a husband, and a father, that I had one very, very important job to always, always remember, no matter how angry, frustrated, whatever difficulties that got, that the way my boys saw me treat my wife was the way they were going to treat theirs, regardless Mm -hmm. of what came out of my mouth. And the way my girls, more importantly even, the way my girls saw me treat my wife, was the way that they would expect to be treated once they were married. So if I abused my wife, and I don't mean beating her up physically abused, sure. but if I was emotionally uh, or or emotionally abusive or mean or wasn't a safe place or didn't didn't honor my wife, then my girls would expect that that's what they would get out of a man one day. But if I did honor and I was faithful to her and I did love her and I did care for her no matter what, and I did protect her, that that's exactly what my girls would expect out of a man one day. And and I have lived by that notion as a result of what that mentor taught me. Sure. And I do believe that my kids and their future's lives
1: with their spouses and their children would be better from it. No doubt about it, you know, because, you know, like sometimes they don't listen to what we say but they are watching they, they are watch very observant and they are watching they watch you know, they sure is, do. you know that that's that is catching they are catching what you're doing no doubt about it all right let's fast forward you know because I thought this was interesting I run across this in the book you know while you're at Ole Miss um, you have the unique experience to learn from an incident that you know, was, was in Ole Miss history, especially athletics and especially football, you know, was one of the defining moments, I think. You know, I think you were on the sideline when the Chucky Mullins incident happened. You know, like what what did you learn from that? Like, you know, the way the people reacted to it, what come from it, you know, like what did you as a, as a human learn from that? When Chucky
0: hit Brad Gaines, sorry, Brad Gaines was the fullback for Vanderbilt, Chucky hit Chuck nobody hit Chucky Chucky actually hit Brad Um, you know that changed Ole Miss football forever but it also changed the university forever and to put it in perspective back then at Ole Miss hell I don't think the band played anything but Dixie you might have heard Dixie 70 times a game And, and everybody showed up with the Confederate flag now I got to interject something here. 99.9% of the people, myself included, that listened to Dixie and roared or liked the way those Confederate flags flags looked like waving up in the stands, it wasn't a racist thing. It was just, it was, but that was back in the 80s and there was a different understanding of things. And Coach Brewer, Billy Brewer, always would say, and he and I had a conversation about it personally. That he 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 understood all the the history behind it, but hated it because it made him so hard for him to recruit. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. all all the kid had to do was have a coach from Auburn sit down in front of a recruit and say to a grandmama, "Are you going to send your your son up there or your grandson up there to?" You see what they're doing up there? And it was used against us. And then on a national scale, when people in Illinois or Kansas or 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 the Northeast or basically anywhere outside of Mississippi saw Ole Miss play on national TV and that camera panned up there and you could hear Dixie and see all that Confederate flag, there was always something negative said about my school and my university that very largely was untrue, but symbols matter. Much like you say, people may hear what they hear, but they see what they see. The reason I'm saying all this is Chucky got hurt in the middle of the university and the Ole Miss family as a whole starting to have a real conversation with one another about are we doing the right thing here? And when Chucky got hurt, the university surrounded him and support, um, as they should. Sure, And and Chucky, the few years he lived afterwards, when he was in his wheelchair and on the sidelines and stuff, became a symbol of not just perseverance and toughness for the football team, but he became a symbol of reconciliation for the university and some racial things that were pretty deep. And I think that the love shown for Chucky and the Chuck and the love shown by Chucky back to the university really helped the university come to grips with, there are things we need to do and things we don't need to do because if a guy like Chucky looks at us because of some symbols we're using and, and looks at us differently than just human beings, we may need to think of rethink how we're doing that. And so for me, it was being at Ole Miss at, a, at an unbelievable time when, when all that happened. It was watching the interaction between the community at Ole Miss, both the athletic and non-athletic community at Ole Miss, and Chucky and this love affair that developed and all of the positive change that came as a result of what – so Chucky stands for so much more than courage on a football field. Sure. He stands for cultural courage. He stands for social courage. He stands for things that 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 matter long after the days of playing football are over. And 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 as a result, I think the university is a better place for having had Chucky as one of their spokespeople, who remains a spokesperson for the university even in death.
1: Sure. That's awesome. You know, and it's that's an awesome experience that you know that you were able to have just by being there, you know, like and that's that's I've never thought about that. You know, I grew up an Ole Miss fan, you know, and that perspective was never, you know, like I never never really thought about that. All right, you graduate. It's it's deep, coach. It sure. really runs
0: deep. It runs deep in the athletic community. It it's it's a very real thing that that and Ironically, I, I know you want to move on, but one other thing is Brad Gaines plays a massive role in that too. He was no a doubt. player at Vanderbilt. He was going to the NFL. In fact, he played for Pittsburgh a couple of years. He, back then, Brad Gaines of Vanderbilt was like the dog. Sure, Brad's life changed as a result of it. The friendship that he and Chucky developed was unlike anything you would ever imagine. And then Brad even becomes, ironically, a spokesperson on behalf of what he saw the Ole Miss family do. For sure. I mean, when, when you're a football player, when you're like the man at Vanderbilt, and all of a sudden you become a huge proponent of the Ole Miss family because the way it reacted to Chucky and the changes it went through as, as a result of Chucky, just think about how much Chucky meant to the university on a national scale. and. um so there's there's a there's as deep a perspective as I can give you.
1: No, and I think that's absolutely awesome. And I think, you know, having those experiences in your life leads you even more to do some of the things that you go on to do, you know, as there's far no as helping people, you know. There's no, no doubt about it. All right, you graduate Ole Miss, and it looks like you get into coaching for a few years. Um, and I would assume for obvious reasons coaches had a huge impact on you Um, and then you decide to sell cars for a while probably pretty good at that then you get into you know the the lumber business Um, and now this is a this is a just a question you know when you move from football to cars to lumber what is behind the move you know like is it Financial in nature, time related, you know, like, um, you know, because I'm okay in 1994, my first head coaching job, I made $24,291. It was You were insane. rich. I was well, I was filthy rich, to be honest with you. I had no idea how rich I was. But, <laughs> you know, like, you know, there were times where I contemplated, you know, early on, like, yeah, you know, because if we wanted to go buy a tv when me and my wife were very you know newly married we couldn't just go buy a tv we had to sit down and like okay now like can we do this and we had to plan for it so you know just my curiosity was you know was that was that behind those decisions at that time
0: well it was two things one like i told you i had four kids in four years well i was making seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a year with no insurance, two kids born, one on the way, and got $500 extra if I cut the grass all summer, was working all kinds of odd jobs I could come up with to make ends meet. And it was financial in nature, Mm. but football remained my passion. I don't know how it is in Mississippi, Missouri, anywhere else, but in Tennessee, the TSSAA, which is Governing Body of Athletics Tennessee, you can go to Nashville for about seven weekends and take all these classes and be what's called a certified non-faculty coach, which means you're not like a dad on the sideline. You are covered sure. by the school's insurance. You are an employee of the school system, but you're not faculty. You, it's, but you have to get all this accreditation and approval. Sure. So that's what I did. So when I got out of coaching and teaching as a profession, I had to, just because I couldn't put diapers and get formula for my children. And, you know, here I was this guy that had a master's and I was an overeducated guy that could, that had no applied abilities Mm -hmm. other than coaching. So, but because of what coaches meant to me, I was never getting away from coaching. So I coached for 31 years. I just had to get out of it as a profession so I could try to figure out a way to make enough money to take care of my pretty wife and all these kids. Sure. But I never quit coaching. I, I, I got that accreditation and kept coaching. So I just did both. Sure. I, I'm one of the luckiest people on the face of the planet, coach. I was able to to have my cake and eat it too. And the way I got in the lumber business, curiosity is, I was actually selling fleets of cars to companies. I sold some trucks to a guy owned a lumber company. He offered me $10,000 a year more than I was making at the car thing. Hell, that, that covered diapers for a year. <laughs> so I get into the lumber business, and five years later, at 31 years old, I end up the vice president of this thing and wanted to, to try to own something one day. And he had kids coming up, and that just wasn't in the cards. And so I started my own business, a lumber company, but continued to coach all the way along through that whole time. Mm-hmm. So I was chasing money for my family, but chasing my passion still through coaching.
1: Well, as John Wooden would say, you were very industrious, like you figured (laughs) it out, which is awesome. You know, now something I did want to ask you about was, you know, you worked for the lumber company in I think it was Horn Lake, uh, Mississippi. Yeah, that's right. Then you, you know, because, you know, you really wanted to have a part of the ownership and that wasn't going to happen due to you know family members or what have you what about having the courage to go out there and start your own like I think you know like to me because I'm a very safe human being I want to know what's coming in this month and I want you know having the courage to do that you know like where did that come from was that a was that a tough decision the courage came from Lisa um Again, I,
0: I'd reached to be vice president of this company, and you heard how it came up. I sure. never had a yard to cut before I bought my own house. I, I lived in apartments all whole life. Sure. Well, now we had four kids and a good school. I was making really good money as a vice president of this company. And from where I came from, you know, we just bought a 2,800-square-foot house with five bedrooms. All the kids had their own bedroom. I mean, I'd arrived, sure. Coach. I was better... I was than I thought I'd ever have in the world. And so I went to Lisa, and I said, but I I'd like to try this myself, but you know, we may have a house, but we got a house note and we may have cars, but we got car notes. And none of this is guaranteed. And I'd be risking everything. And she said, you were broke when I met you and we can be broke again. If this is what you think you want to do, go for it. And that's what gave me the courage. And I will tell you, if anybody listening has an idea or wants to endeavor something, you best have support of your spouse, real support. And you need to lay out in front of your family truly what the worst case scenario looks like. And if that worst case scenario is too scary, just don't do it. But if it's not, then go for it. Because you can't, you will never be successful without your family supporting you. And so I had that. And so we started Classic American Hardwoods. I had $17,000 in the bank and we started on a wing and a prayer. And really, Coach worked hard and got
1: very, very fortunate. And we're still here today. You know what? I, I you know, two thoughts. Number one, Lisa is probably. The hero of the whole story because everything that you've ever been privileged to do you know since you've been married she had to be on board with or it don't work you know I mean you 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 talk about working you know a, a real job and coaching you know like she sacrificed her husband and she sacrificed her kids at a very young age to allow you to do that and You know, I've often said, other than accepting Christ as your Savior, the most, the next most important decision in your life is who you spend the rest of your life with. Because in this profession, if your wife's not on board, you will not be successful. Because of the amount of time it takes, you will. And I've seen many a friend end up in a divorce because they chose to be a football coach. You know, and and was and was miserable because of that, you know, like if that person's not on board and, you know, in your story, man, like I had that written down, you know, right beside your name in parentheses, I had Lisa because without her, man, don't none of this happen. You know what I'm saying? Like
0: it it never happens coach. I was, I was running a business, starting a business that took hours. I was going to work at four in the morning, then leaving that, and going coaching football from 3 30, 6 30 every day. And then, of course, as you know, football, the season is only part of it. You've got the off season, you got the weightlifting, doing both of those while my children were two, three, four, and five, or four, five, six, and seven. She's affording me the time to do all of these things while taking care of a house full of kids and supporting me. I'm telling you, she is that Mike linebacker. That can make a bad defensive line look right.
1: Sure. She's no, no doubt. No, she she's a star because that, there's not there's not very many people that would sacrifice that. They just wouldn't. You know what I'm saying? No, but-
0: I am the most blessed human being. On top of it, coach, you can see me. She's a dime. Coach, she's so good looking, it. it's unbelievable. On top of yeah. everything else, she's hot. I'm the luckiest dude. You've never seen a fat redheaded guy that's any luckier than the man you're staring at today. I promise. Blessings
1: upon blessings. You know what I'm saying? Like I'd rather I'd rather be lucky than than good any day of the week. Boy, this qualifies. Cool right. Let's fast forward. Let's go to let's let's go to manassa You know, like I know how you get involved at Manassa It's through a friend who was. I think working through a, a church, you know, providing meals or this or this. And then he, you know, he tells you, you know, it looks like they got a few good players. There's not very many of them. And, you know, why why do you decide uh, And at that time? Like what was the decision behind that? Manassas,
0: uh, when I showed up, previous 10 years record was four wins and 95 losses mm. I had 17 kids on our varsity football team. And your listeners may not understand, but some of them were still wearing suspension
1: helmets.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. That's the equipment they had. Right. It's terrible. And the reason is it's three, it's three, it's not even a mile from my plant. It was convenient, right? I could work, I could grow my business and still had the time to get over there. I didn't, you know, so, and you know, when you're 496, heck, I could go three and seven, and they ain't firing me. I mean, you know, I, so I had time. Sure. And when I went over for spring practice, I saw three kids out there, one of which was, you know, everybody says this, but this guy, well, it, he went to play for Ole Miss, so he was Division one talent, right? Sure. But this kid was unbelievable, and they were, and what I found is, that I was a little ashamed of myself, coach, because the news and movies and TV sensationalize kids from the inner city in a way that you think you know what you're going to get when you show up to one of these inner city teams. And what I found was black, tatted up kids from the hood. That's what I saw in my eyes. But what I found with my ears and my heart were really really wonderful, meaningful kids who just wanted to be part of something special. And from the day one, it was yes, sir, no, sir. A certain level of mental and physical toughness that I'd never coached in my life. These kids have been through so much. You didn't have to coach tough. No doubt. But you had to coach X's and O's because there wasn't any. You had to get them equipment. You had to level the playing field. You had to teach the important stuff of character, commitment, integrity, and all that. But the raw bones were there. And so seven years later, that 17 kids grows to 75 kids. And our record, our last two years was 18 and two. And it's 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 a testament to the work the kids put in. Given a level playing field, proper equipment, proper instruction, a little bit of consistency and love, They are the embodiment of the the truth that it does not matter the zip code at the time of your birth. The human spirit is unbelievable. And given the right opportunities, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, you can succeed and you can win if just given an opportunity. And, And I'm telling you, coach, I got so much more out of that seven years of coaching than I ever put into it because of the restorative faith I got and what any human being can do. And those kids showed it.
1: Well, you know, they're a great example of, you know, what we started off with, you know, like they did not choose the situations that they were born into. Now, when you show up in their life with truly a heart to serve, you know, like some of them, Um, receive the opportunity to make a choice, you know, like they can make a choice to not continue down that same path. Um, Now, let me ask you this, you know, and having coached, you know, all types of kids, you know, one of the things that I always struggled with and still struggle with. And I had a, I had a, you know, really good coach long time ago. Tell me you cannot save them all. It's impossible. So don't put yourself to that standard. But, you know, like, how did you deal with, because in that situation, you know, I mean, that happened probably a decent amount when, you know, provided an op, a per, provided a different avenue and they choose to not jump on board. Did that bother you? How did you handle that? All right. One of my
0: four fundamental beliefs that I, literally think about every single day of my life is this. I think the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. And I mean that in business. I mean that in your family. I mean that as a coach. And so what I'm saying is if things aren't going well on your team or in your business unit, your family, before you start raising cane, with all the people you're supposed to be leading, you need to look yourself in the mirror make sure you're doing it all right. Because the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. If the actions of followers are off, you need to check yourself as a leader. And so in answer to your question, whenever I have something come off the rails coaching, the first thing I do is I take a an inventory of my interaction with that kid and make sure I haven't erred. And if I can find one place that I haven't done everything I'm supposed to do, then I want, I I make sure I rectify that first. Having said that, there are still people that you can't reach. There are still people in business and on teams and there just are, but I would say there are far fewer than you think originally meets the eye if you take a true inventory of of your abilities and your effectiveness as a coach, a leader, a a business owner, or a father. So that's the first thing I do. The second thing is the greatest leaders of our time always give credit to the followers when things go well and they take the blame when things don't go well. And coach, I was uh, three and three my first year at Manassas, about midway through the season. And, I think three and three is average, but when you've won four games in 10 years, they thought I was a fat red-headed version of Pete Carroll or something. Right. Right. And So the whole team's buying into football. Yes, sir. No, sir. Do equipment and let's get it. But the minute football was over practices or games or, or whatever, a little bit of off time, half the team was buying into the important stuff, character, commitment, integrity, the stuff like you and I really want to coach, right? We use the X's and O's to get to that stuff, right? And while half the team was buying into that, doing their homework, being respectful to teachers, pulling their pants up, not sagging, the other half team, while really respectful on the football field, the minute football was over, they were back in the streets, and it was driving me crazy. And you know how coaches have a guy. Well, I went to my guy, and I said, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy into the important stuff like your half the team? And this is a guy that had lots of real talk with me, but this time he just kind of dismissively said, oh, coach, just keep trying, doing what you're doing. And I'm like, no, man, real talk. And he said, coach, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I said, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I want to know why that half the team had buying in the important stuff like your half team. He said, all right, coach, trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, Coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into our neighborhoods, and they give us gifts and hams and turkeys, and we take them because we ain't got none. But then they leave, and we never see them again. makes you wonder if they're doing that because they care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. Wow. And he looked me dead in the eyes, and he said, Coach, no offense, but what the hell are you doing here, man? And I'm going to tell you something, Coach. That, that, that pissed me off right good. Because I was there in the mornings. I was there at lunchtime, buying equipment, raising money. I was there doing everything I could. And I was invested. And I wasn't running off. And I was consistent. And, and it bothered me. But then I started listening to myself a little bit. And because Manassas was so bad, everybody in Memphis knew how bad they were. The commercial pill, which is a newspaper from memphis came out front page not of the sports page front page newspaper headline manassas miracle with a seven by nine of me you know hey and every time people be like "Co bill what do you and i'm like yeah man we got them three and three well what else well i got them taking act prep classes well what else well i got them doing their homework well what else well i got them equipment well what else well i got them going up and down to these long games on charter bus instead of school bus, so not freezing at night on the way home. what? anytime anybody asked me anything about Manassas, I was all too happy about telling them everything I was doing. Meanwhile, I had kids getting beat out of gangs because my rule was the only colors you could wear are blue and gold, meaning you can't wear the GD's colors, the Vice Lord's colors, uh, all that. Uh, I had kids sleeping in tubs at night because – they they didn't have a place to sleep, and that was the only place close they could get so they'd get to school on time. I had kids getting called sellouts. If you want to know the real truth, that white sure. coach ain't hey, got nothing for you. I had I had kids doing homework, and their friends saying homeworks for chumps, man. What you doing homework? I had kids buying in to all of these things I was requiring of them, and every time anybody asked me anything about Manassas, I told them everything I was doing. So. I quit that coach. I started giving credit to the kids. I started talking about all the things they were doing and how, how the success was a result of them being a rock and not being a victim of their circumstances. The same lesson I learned when I was their age, when I came from the same type of dysfunction they came from. And I started talking about, and as I started giving more of the credit to them, And backed off and anytime anything went bad, stood up and shielded them for it, held them accountable, of course, held them accountable, but, but had some grace in their lives and gave more to them and let them experience the riches of success and backed up those kids started changing. And so what I would tell you is the greatest measure of the effectiveness of the leader is the actions of the followers, and if the actions of followers aren't suited, take an inventory and check yourself. Make sure you're given due credit, due grace where it deserves. And the last straw, if you have a sociopath, you have to get rid of them. But 99.9% of these kids are just broken kids who need a little bit of love, consistency, and help and that's what I'm pulling.
1: Man, I think that's outstanding, Um, and I, man, I read that in your book, uh, you know, and Against the Grain, I thought, man, that is fantastic, because too many times people try to take credit, you know, and not take the blame, and, you know, I learned that about 10 years ago, sitting in a A coaching deal that Brian Kite was at and he made the statement that if your team went four and seven you are a four and seven coach look in the mirror and at the time I heard that it really made me mad because I was that person that nah I'm not a four and seven coach you know like I'm at a four and seven school or you know I got four and seven players or man it hit me right between the eyes you know that whatever team goes out on that field I'm responsible I'm the, i'm the one you know like and if it don't go right if it don't go like man that's on me you know like as the leader you know and then how they carry themselves in that school building how they carry themselves in the community that's on me too you know I mean if a five technique or is
0: not spilling a pool at them that's your fault no that's no. Don't be yelling at him for getting trapped. Be yelling at him, be yelling at yourself for not teaching him better. No doubt about it. And and, and that is a microcosm of everything. i want to say one more thing to you, Coach, about this before we go on. If you serve soup at soup kitchens or give away turkeys on Thanksgiving or hams at Christmas, that is a beautiful thing. Do not misunderstand the story about a turkey person. And I, I've, I've told that story, and I've had people actually go up and say, I give turkeys away on Thanksgiving and I do it because it's bringing my heart. And somehow people get insulted by that story. You know what? Check yourself. Don't be insulted by that story. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing that you do. There's nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. I just question this. What's your motive? Make sure your motive's right. If your motive is to simply care for and serve people that aren't as advantaged as you are, and you do it for their edification and not, for the backslaps, slaps or the way people in your social circles think about you because of the nice things you're doing. If you're doing it for them and not for yourself, then you're dead nuts on. If you get a rise out of the way it elevates you in your society, you are a fraud and the people you are serving will say yes or no, sir. And they'll take what you give. But the minute you turn and walk away, they'll start darts through you because they know what they're looking at. So okay. just check it.
1: No doubt. And, and, you know, and I would think just, you know, on the outside looking in, you know, the test is you do something for somebody and you tell five, six, seven or eight people. eh, You'd have to question why they're doing it. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, that's not what and that's not what the Bible preaches. You know what I'm saying? The Bible don't preach. Do something for somebody and go tell everybody about it. You know, like that's not. All right. You got three things that uh, three, three uh, quote stories or something that. I pulled out of the podcast with Mike Rowe that I thought was really, really good. Number one, players win games, coaches win players. I've never
0: seen it. I think, didn't Woody Hayes tackle somebody one time? I think the (laughs) only time I've ever seen a coach make a play was when the coach at Ohio State came off the sideline on a kickoff return. I've never seen a coach make a tackle, score a touchdown. Coaches don't win football games. Players win football games. No doubt. Our job as coaches, as fathers, a, as business leaders, as, as community leaders, is to win the hearts and minds of the people we seek to serve. No and you do that by walking the talk, and you do that by employing character, commitment, integrity, consistency, and holding yourself accountable first. And when you do that, you will win the hearts and minds of the people you seek to lead, and you will find success. Players win games. Coaches win players. Salespeople win contracts. Business owners win the salespeople. Children win their futures.
1: You win your children. It all fits. No doubt. You know, I I tell our kids all the time that players make plays. Players win games. And on Friday night, man, I'm a fan. Like, I enjoy watching them play. I enjoy being a high school football fan, you know, like I'm not, by the time Friday rolls around, man, the outcome of that game more or less is already determined. Um, Yeah. There's
0: about, uh, there's about 10 decisions you make on a Friday night that might matter, but the vast majority of it is on those kids. And if you've done the right, the right job preparing them, you really don't have to do a lot on Friday, but just make a few decisions. And frankly, Those kids will make bad decisions good a lot of times, too, if they're properly prepared. So you're right. I'm right there with you. I love Friday nights. It was fun to watch.
1: It was very fun. All right, my second thing I ran across that, you know, in this profession, you know, really hit me was when you talk about teachers and or coaches with families, be careful to criticize them. Be careful to talk about, you know, what play they just called because of the amount of time that they are investing in your kids. I am
0: fine having a civil, non-threatening, but very real conversation on a Monday morning with anybody who wants to talk football about the way that I called or anything else. Because the truth is, and this won't be popular maybe, I don't care if it is or isn't, but – 99.9% 99.9% of the people that watch football don't know a damn thing about it, to be honest. <laughs> they don't know why a three technique is getting washed. They don't know what an RPO really is. They don't know if you're reading a five technique or you're reading an outside backer on an RPO. They do not understand when, you, when you're when you running G and T, why your spacing between your guard and tackle have to be right. They don't know about mesh points. They don't know what you know from practicing to being around these kids all year, what your kicker can and cannot do, and what what the athletic ability of your quarterback and receivers and your tailbacks are and are not. They don't know that you only have eight kids that can really play defense and you're masking three that are just kind of serviceable. They don't know any of that. They just think from playing Madden, and watching some analyst on Saturday or Sunday talking football that they know a little something. Right. So when I see parents in stands on Friday nights, standing up and screaming and talking and gathering people up around them about how bad and how stupid this high school coach is, the same guy that spends more time with your son than you do, The same guy who is not with his kids and wife on Friday night, but are pouring themselves into your kids. The same guy that on summers is working in the weight room and spending time with your kids and not only teaching them football, but mentoring them about life. The same guy that is pouring himself, who has a wife and children usually, who are also pulling themselves in to try to make your kid, not only a better football player, but a better human being, those parents up there screaming at that guy because they don't like a play call need to shut up. Yeah, no doubt. And they need to consider the entire world. Now, if at the end of a couple of seasons, it's not getting done, sometimes good coaches don't work in certain situations and sometimes, you know, Certainly there are times where coaches need to be moved on and and everything else. But there's a civil way to handle that, and there's also a really bad way to handle it. And I don't appreciate parents not considering the entire body of work that goes into a coach's life except a bad call they make on a Friday night. And I think think there ought to be more civility, and I think there ought to be more understanding – of the role of coach played in your son's life before you decide to undress him because you don't like his third and fourth call.
1: Sure. And and you know, that's gotten worse today than it was 30 years ago when I started because of social media. Now you can go on right. social media and just land blast somebody on a computer that, you know, you have no face to it. A lot of times they don't even have their name to it. And then, you know, coaches' kids see it and, you know, like it's it's a very cowardly way. Uh, it is. I have,
0: I have never denied a parent or an administrator or anybody else a meeting to sit and talk with me about why I'm doing what. Right. I'm happy to have that conversation in a very civil pointed way. It, But if I hear you're up in the stand acting a damn fool doing the very thing I'm trying to teach your son not to do, I will not have time for you. Right, and for That sure. is addressed in a parent meeting before every season. And, and that is the way it is because ultimately you're undoing a lot of the hard work
1: I'm trying to do with your son to make him a good human being. That's right. No doubt about it. All right. The third, the, the third one, the last one that I, I thought was really funny was what you learned from Kimmins Wilson, the guy, the uh, guy that, you know, the holiday Inn uh guy you know, when he told you, you know, you can be really successful if you only work half a day, and you was all about that. What about that?
0: Jimmins Wilson was the founder of Holiday Inns. He was actually from Arkansas, moved to Memphis. He and his family went on a road trip one day, and back in the day, you either had roadside motels like the Bates Motel, or you had something like the Peabody, a really beautiful – there were no, you know, Marriott's and Hilton's sure. and, and Hampton Inns, all that. They didn't exist. Well, he decided you needed to have a hotel that no matter where you saw, where you went, you saw the sign and you knew you were going to get a color TV and the room was going to be the same. And he started the Holiday Inn, which is now the model for every chain hotel you've ever seen and was a billionaire. So I got this award in college and got to go sit down and have lunch with him one day. And I literally met him at his private airport and his jet was sitting right outside where we were having lunch. And you know me, I came up broke. I'm just in awe of the whole thing. And at the end of lunch, he said, "Do you really want to know what it takes to be successful?" And I'm like, "Yes, sir." I'm sitting in your airport. There's your jet. You're a billionaire. I would love to know. I'll take a tenth, you know. And he said, "Bill, all you got to do is decide you're gonna work half a day." And I'm thinking, if I can work half a day, got what this man got. I'm in. He said, "Yep, you can work the first twelve hours or the second twelve hours. You choose." <laughs> Just work half a day. And he said this, the United States government says eight hours is an average work day and 40 hours is an average work week. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you tell me why you think you're going to work average and be exceptional. Mm. He said, "If you want to work average and be exceptional? You're in the wrong place. If you want to work average, be average. And there's nothing wrong with that, but if you want to be exceptional, work exceptional. And
1: it just takes half a day. Yeah, that was awesome. That was very. That was very good. All right, now I'm gonna put all this in the show notes, okay? Because this is what I want the people that listen to do. I want number one. I want to make sure that you went and pulled up undefeated. I rented it on Amazon Prime for two ninety nine, which you know, big deal, right? Oh, it's just be fantastic. Saying,
0: okay. I got to tell you something. I get zero royalties from the movie. So I'd love y'all to go see Undefeated, but I'm not doing it for my own pocketbook because I get no money for it. But no, I, I don't like it.
1: I understand. It was fantastic. You know, like it, it was really good. Um, your podcast, An Army of Normal Folks, is fantastic. It is about folks that are doing great things. And after you watch, watch, watch the movie first, and then you know, dive into the podcast because the podcast is going to actually interview some folks that are in Undefeated, which, you know, I thought was absolutely fantastic. The book is against the grain. Um, It's absolutely fantastic. I thought the whole thing was great, you know, like, and, you know, this is the last thing before, you know, I, I let you go. The, you know, the story, okay? Like two guys come in with a camera, And they filmed stuff for about a year, you know, and I'm sure at the time because we've had people come in and out with cameras and, yeah, well, then they put all this together. And I told my wife when we got through watching it, I mean, they did a fantastic job because, I mean, they probably got thousands of hours and we watched two hours, you know, but the two hours was really good, you know, with the two hours, you know, like I wanted to know what what, what happened to OC. I wanted to know what Chavis, you know, what, what, what turned out with him, which, you know, some of that's in the podcast, you know, like you just, the stories, you know, was fantastic. And I know your purpose because now I know, you know, like your purpose was not for them to ever make a documentary about your time there. That's not why you were there. You were there to save, to give those kids a, a little bit of a shining light into a better way of life. Now, I believe God allows good things to happen to good people and undefeated the documentary is something good that came out of that and you know we ended up winning an Oscar right Um, from the undefeated so you know after the show comes out you know and after you know how did that you know how did that affect you was that you know was it something you were very proud of something you were embarrassed about something that you know did that give you a little more uh you know did it did it add value to your life and your you know, being able to help people and, you know, like what was the result of that? Coach,
0: look, people see a movie, especially one that won an Academy Award, and they envision makeup artists and boom trucks and satellites and big crews. You got to understand, this was three guys with two rented cameras that followed us around for a season. That was it. I had on a little mic and some of the players had on mic. That was it. The whole budget for this movie was less than $250,000. We thought we would see this thing Wednesday at 3 a.m. on channel 322. (laughs) And then two years later, I'm walking down the red carpet at the Academy Awards with P. Diddy and George Clooney coach. It's just so what I thought, I thought I had about 20 minutes of fame. I'd come back to coach football, be a dad and a husband run my business, be done with it. But For some reason, God blessed me with this platform as a result of this thing. And so, you know, I I started speaking at places like Nike and Google and Firestone and the Olympics. And then from the speeches, all this stuff I was saying, which I don't think is that revolutionary, but uh, to a lot of people, it was That's when I wrote the book. And then the book led to TV appearances and more stuff and then the podcast. So here's what I'll tell you undefeated was the last year of six years never went there thinking any of that was going to happen when it did happen never thought it would amount to much and for some reason it did and so lisa and i talked about okay this is happening what do we do with it and the answer was pretty simple we're going to do if we're going to use this we're going to use it because it's high time we start having conversations about stuff that matters. We need to talk about race and politics and religion and creed and all the stuff that's going on in our society. We just need to do it in a civil, non-threatening way. And if this gives me a platform on a national level to go out and have conversations about this stuff in a little different way, go against the grain of societal preconceived notion to emulate the idea that we can be a forward-thinking, evolving society without abandoning the core principles that guided us here in the first place. And if we can shine a light on all these thousands of people across our country doing amazing things that you never hear of because it doesn't fit with the national narrative coming out of the national news media on both sides, Fox and CNN, or on both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats in D.C., if we can have a conversation about amazing things that normal folks are doing in our country and in those conversations create a movement that's an army of normal folks celebrating one another, regardless of who we are, where we come from, then maybe we some, do some good as a result of this. So has it changed my life? Has it enriched it? Absolutely. Coach, this podcast is only three months old, and we've been as high as number 10 in the country on Apple. Our listenership is growing every single day, and it's growing not because of me, but because of these amazing stories of these guests that are inspirational and interesting and hopefully, metaphorically, help people See ways they can involve in their society. You don't have to be some A-lister or be rich or be part of some NGO to exact some measure of change. You can do it in your only little corner of the world. And if we could literally grow an army of normal folks believing in that, I think we could change some of the proverbial it that's broken. And so, yeah, it's enriched my life. It's offered me all kinds of opportunities to to have conversation with guys like you about stuff that matters. And I see it as a blessing, but not because of what I did, just because of the opportunities that the Lord's blessed me with.
1: Man, that's awesome. You know, like, and that's, you know, I mean, that's how I run across it. I had a friend, Brian Hebner that sent me your podcast with Mike Rowe. And I just, you know, I jumped into it and I'm a podcast guy while I'm walking or driving or whatever. And, you know, the podcast, uh, you know, your podcast, Um, an army of normal folks, you know, is absolutely phenomenal. And there's one on there about, uh, the, the, what's the guy's name that cuts grass? (laughs) Oh, uh, oh,
0: I can't believe you put me on that spot. Tony. Who is it? Tony? No. Um, the story is he's not even from the United States and he was driving home from work one day. He saw an old man struggling to cut his grass. He got out of his car cut the man's grass for him, and then started just cutting grass for free. And they've cut like over a million yards, and now he's got kids all over the country joining in this 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 movement to go out and
1: cut the grass of people who can't do it for
0: themselves.
1: It's a phenomenal story. Well, the guy that sent it to me, you know, he said, you know, get ready to laugh and get ready to cry because it is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, that's what the podcast is full of, is is stories about people that are doing absolutely outstanding things. It was Rodney Smith Jr. Rodney Smith Jr. Rodney Smith Jr. So I'm so depressed. Yes, Rodney Smith Jr.
0: Great guy. Unbelievable story. And when you listen to him, and he's from, like, Bermuda or Virgin Islands, whatever, he is so proud of our country. He is so proud of what he's doing. This guy has literally cut grass three different times in every state in the country for free and has generated a movement of thousands of teenagers across our country going out in their communities and cutting grass for people who can't afford to cut their grass and can't physically do it. It's just one story. And nobody even knows about this guy. it's story after story after story of people like that. It's phenomenal. It really is. And like I said, it's not about me. It's about these amazing stories. We just try to tell them in an entertaining, redemptive way, but most importantly, in an inspirational way to hopefully inspire our listeners to say, hey, if this normal person, despite financial troubles and all the troubles that us normal people have, if he can do it, I can. And... Um, And 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 hopefully we connect to one another that way.
1: All right, let me ask you this. This is my last question, and I'm gonna let you go. If there was a billboard out on the end, I'm gonna ask you two questions. This is the first. If there was a billboard out on the highway that you could just put a message up to the world, just what would that message be? Don't be a turkey person. Oh, I love it. You know that that was honestly that was. You know, one of the first things I wrote down because I get it, you know, like I totally get it, you know, like, you know, I, I just, I'd never heard that phrase before. All right. This is my second question. This will be a little easier. I'm a barbecue person. Okay. Oh, I love boy. Memphis. Memphis barbecue. What's the best barbecue joint in Memphis?
0: Well, coach, first of all, let's qualify the best region. All right. These Texans, they got it all wrong. You grill beef, you barbecue pork. So all that they're doing, they're just they're just wrong. Okay. So that's that. All right. The second thing is the best barbecue joint in Memphis depends on the fare. Now, if you're gonna have dry ribs, I still believe the rendezvous is the best barbecue. If you're gonna have wet ribs, I believe in Corky's or Central, they're kind of tied. Now, if you want to have barbecue bologna, I believe it's cozy corner. But if you want to have barbecue spaghetti, Now, you got to go down to the barbecue shop on Madison. So, coach, the best barbecue in Memphis is relative to what kind of food you want barbecued.
1: Well, Bill, I'm so thankful for you taking the time. And I will definitely be hollering at you the next time I'm in Memphis so we can share us a barbecue plate of your choice. You pick where we're going to go. Man, I'm such a fan. I'm so honored that you were with us. I'm so thankful. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for leaving comments. Thank you for, you know, if you want to send an email, John Perry at nexusschools.net or my cell phone number, 662-582-0804. Man, I would be so appreciative of you. Until next time, adios amigos.
0: Guardian Caps are lightweight, one-size-fits-all football helmet covers for practice. They reduce 20 to 33% of the impact, depending on the speed and the location. Great for the repetitive, subconcussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end
1: of the year, Guardian Caps can help protect that helmet investment.